The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Welcome back to another episode of They Must Be Destroyed on Site, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Lee Russell, with my co-host, Daniel Harper. How's it going, Dan? Pretty well. How's it been? Good. Uh, we're continuing on with our uh, sex comedy series, although we're taking a slight sort of diversion from the usual sort of sexy comedies. Uh, we're going to be looking at sort of a sci-fi horror takes on the genre with two movies today. But before we get into that, we do have one comment just wanted to address really quickly from one of our regular listeners, uh, Bylog. He says uh, he, he watched The Immoral Mr. T's after, I guess, listening to our uh, podcast. And he says, watching that makes him realize two things. One, boobs are awesome. Two, boobs were better in the 50s and 60s. Better than what is kind of the question I would ask. Yeah. Like better boobs, boobs were better then than now? I mean, boobs are pretty awesome now. Honestly, I you know I ha- I have uh, access to to a pair. You know I- I'm a married man, and you know I certainly have you know the internet. Plenty of boobs out there, yeah, um, it's, it's, it's all very... shapes and sizes for for uh, for the discriminating gentleman of the highest uh, aficionado of a boob should be able to find. It's all very subjective, of course, but uh, I'm sure he's probably may- maybe making. Um... He's probably making reference to natural versus silicone, although uh, implants and stuff were sort of coming in into uh, regular, uh, I guess, screen time <laughs> right. some, some, somewhere around that era. Yeah, we'd have to uh, look into that and do some actual research, which is not something we typically do on this podcast. Uh, uh, yeah. Actual reading and research. Um, well, there is that, uh, there is that, there was that movie made in HBO years, years back. Uh, the Chris, Chris Cooper was in that? I think so. I know one of the guys from Friends was in it. Yeah, Chris. David Schwimmer was in it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think Chris Cooper, the guy from, uh, Adaptation and American Beauty, mm-hmm. where they were, uh, I, I only saw, like, five minutes of that, and I went, you know, this looks pretty decent, but it also looks kind of silly, so. Yeah, it's kind of boring, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, just while we're on the topic, while we're, you know, talking about, uh, plastic surgery is, I mean, it's an important thing. Like, it's an actual discipline that, that people, I mean, you know, lots of uh, kind of like facial reconstructive surgeries or, you know, all sorts of things. I mean, given that we are both men who, uh, you know, may suffer from male pattern baldness, I mean, you kind of don't have that issue, I guess, um, since you shaved your head. And I, if I'm not losing my hair at this point, I'm probably not going to. Yeah. Um, certainly... There are plenty of uh, reasons for plastic surgery to exist, and uh, while we might bemoan maybe the the uh, overuse of plastic surgery, great tits on porn stars and softcore porn, and you know that sort of thing, uh, the reality is that a lot of the tits that you think are fake really aren't, and a lot of the ones that you think are, mm-hmm. aren't fake really are. You know, um, there 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 is such a thing as good plastic surgery. I tend to kind of reject the idea of this kind of golden age in 1959 when like. Real, women were real women and that sort of thing. Like it's it's kind of uh, pointless nostalgia, I think, to some degree. Yeah, um, I agree. Uh, 
the access to tits today is so much higher than it ever has been. Anyway, that's my opinion. I still appreciate the uh, the listener, even though I just kind of told him to go fuck himself. But you know, yeah. yay! <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm the I'm the uh, kind of the the bad guy wrestler of this podcast. I've kind of realized yeah. that I'm the one that people hate. Just um, turning heel on everybody. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm the people are gonna hate listen to my half of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, thanks for the comment. Uh, of course, we uh, welcome all comments, questions, uh, whether they're positive or negative, and we'll respond to everything we get. Suggestions for movie god, suggestions for movies to watch in the future, anything like that. Please, please send them in, whether it's under the YouTube video or if you go to our Podbean page and uh, email me personally or whatever, even if you want to tweet us, whatever. If you can if you can stamp out something uh, intelligible in uh, 140 characters or whatever, then uh, feel free. That's awesome. Yeah. Suggestions of things I can put in my ass that would, you know, certainly be. You know. So uh, I, I guess speaking of Movie God, we can actually uh, move on to play around of Movie God. Uh, and just in case, yeah, just in case you're a first time uh, listener, Movie God is the game where uh, we give each other two things, whether it's two actors, two movies, two scripts, two composers, two soundtracks, something movie related. And we have to eliminate one of those two things from the timeline. So everything that comes after it is forever either does not exist or just changes dramatically. And the idea is to have two things that are going to be hard to choose between. So someone, so the person uh, who's given the question has to make a real tough decision and actually work through and think out uh, what the results would be if they eliminated one of those things from the timeline. So, um, I think I'll uh, let you go first, Daniel, and uh, pose uh, your movie god question to me. Sure. I uh, am kind of in a classic Hollywood move to, mood today, so uh, we're going to go with Alfred Hitchcock okay. or Billy Wilder. Ooh. Oh. You have to kill one, removing them completely from the timeline. Yeah, okay. This might not be as difficult as one might might think for me. Um I'm definitely not as familiar with Billy Wilder's work as I am Alfred Hitchcock's. So in taking away Hitchcock, this is a guy who's working from the silent era up to the, to the talkies. Uh, mm-hmm. His style and influence has been pretty much seen and felt all over the place. Like, man, so I'm, I'm I mean, trying to, it, I'm, it'd be hard to, it'd be hard to figure out what a thriller would even look like without Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. Um, Hitchcock uh, introduced uh, storyboards into American directing. Um, he was actually, I believe, an animator, not an animator, but a storyboard artist for Disney way back in the in the uh, 30s, I think. Mm. Um, and uh, kind of took that technique and brought it to Hollywood. That's one of the like really technical innovations that he, he brought with him from that uh, time period. I'm trying to think of what Billy Wilder's done that I've seen that I... Billy Wilder's a little bit more subtle, you know. Mm. Uh, he, he made a bunch of films, a bunch of kind of classic films, but I definitely think that his uh, influence has been uh, a little bit more diffuse. Um, in the sense of, you know, it's it's hard to kind of pick the Billy Wilder film or like the Billy Wilder shot. You know, like finding you know directors who say I am today's Billy Wilder. You know, like that sort of thing. Yeah. So there are lots of filmmakers. You know, Brian De Palma essentially was like I, you know. Alfred Hitchcock of the seventies, mm-hmm. you know, essentially. Yep. 
Um, Blue Water is much less direct influence, but I think no less profound for that. Yeah, um, I'm just uh, there, there's just not a lot of like I like I said I I haven't seen a lot of Billy Wilder and the stuff I have seen his just I don't know I I don't think it holds the importance for me personally as Alfred Hitchcock would I mean just like you said um, just Brian De Palma is their entire early career basically was uh, emulating Hitchcock. Uh, you could say the same for uh, Jerry Argento, where he made all of his classic films. Uh, mo- a lot of them were very in, uh, influenced by Alfred Hitchcock, and you could argue that Hitchcock's influence sort of permeated the uh, sort of uh, giallo uh, murder, sort of mystery murder, semi-slasher genre from Italy. Yeah, I, I think I get rid of Billy Wilder. Uh, I mean, honestly, I, it, it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, I guess it's kind of a hard one to answer in the way that, like I, like I said, I just haven't seen enough of Billy Wilder that I can maybe make a fair decision there. But uh. I think it's, I, I think it's hard to point to like one thing that definitely wouldn't exist without Billy Wilder. But he made so many films, and he was so long-lived in terms of his filmmaking career. Personally, given that choice, I kill Hitchcock kind of for the same reason that you'd like. Billy Water means more to me personally, mm-hmm. particularly The Apartment um, is, is yeah. one of my favorite films uh, of that kind of that era. Anyway, I think uh, you know as much as I love Hitchcock's stuff, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more here in a moment. You know, for me, mulling those two choices, I kind of have to go. I kill Hitchcock, uh, not because it doesn't change cinema, but because I would kind of be interested in seeing what what changes. If yeah, you kill Hitchcock, you know, like like that would it would kind of be fascinating to see where those kind of movies go without Hitchcock's you know influence. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to think of what um, I know. Christopher Lee was in a Billy Wilder film, um, and he and Christopher and you know just oh, um, Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, sorry, I, I knew I had him on the brain for a reason. And that then that that's actually probably my favorite Billy Wilder film. And I know Chris just I was just you know I still had Christopher Lee in my brain after uh, after his death the the previous uh, week or so ago. Um, and I was thinking of some, I still had some of his trivia things going on in my head. And I remember reading one piece where he said his favorite director that he worked with was Billy Wilder. So, yeah, a, a lot of actors would say similar things. Um, uh, I think, uh, Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau might not have had the careers that they had without Billy Wilder. Um, That's true. Uh, some like it hot, uh, was, was Billy Wilder. Um, so, you know, who knows what Marilyn Monroe might've, might've been without, um, you know, a really good role, role, you know, like that. Anyway, I, I think it's it's kind of interesting. It's almost uh, I should let you uh, go and uh, pull up the uh, the list of films first, and then make the yeah. Oh, well. uh, anyway, no, I I agree with your reasoning, but disagree with your decision. If that uh, makes sense. Yeah, right on. Okay, so uh, I'll give you mine, and mine. I was actually just trying to think. Of, I was just trying to think for quite a while. Um, what am I going to throw at Daniel? Because I don't want to throw something too obscure horror or something like that that he, he might not be familiar with. So I got to thinking uh, comedians in the 1980s or com- comedic actors in the 1980s who whether later went to prominence in uh, more dramatic and more well-respected roles. And I decided that uh, for my movie God question to you, you have to eliminate either Tom Hanks or Bill Murray. Oh, uh, Tom Hanks, no question. <laughs> um, Tom Hanks is a uh, 
a great actor. I think he gets underrated sometimes. I, I think, um, you know, certainly today, I think he's uh, a little bit more of a joke. I think, uh, you know, it's been a, I don't know, he was in that Captain Phillips movie, though, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's been a while since we've, you know, the kind of the, the crest of Tom Hanks, you know. But Bill Murray is a fucking national treasure. Like, like, <laughs> I mean, as much as, you know, the, the kind of Ghostbusters remakes and, you know, the, the reboots and all that sort of thing, Bill Murray makes that movie. Man, yeah, no, it, it, it really is just one of those things, like, as much as I love Tom Hanks and, and so many of his roles, and I think he's a, he's a very fine actor, I think that there was a period where he was a little bit too self-serious. Mm. Um I'd love to see him honestly do like a Tarantino film or something. I'd love to see him really like <laughs> do something like a complete 180 from what we've seen him do before. Um, I do think that there may very well be a, you know, kind of next act to the Tom Hanks story. But if you ask me, you know, who is, who is the, who is more important? It's absolutely Bill Murray is way, way more important, even though his roles are so, um, he's so esoteric in a lot of ways in terms mm-hmm. of, the choices that he has made in the last, you know, say 15 years or so, he is uh, such the, the more important artist, I think. And in terms of uh, influencing people and just in terms of raw talent, I mean, for me, that's, that's, that's actually a really easy decision, even though there are some Tom Hanks performances that have meant a lot to me. It's funny. Like in particular, I think of a Forrest Gump actually was one that I really loved when it was new Mm-hmm. That has not aged terribly well. No. <laughs> um, um, but I really loved then. Um, he's also, I think, more important as a producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, like he's he's more important as a you know kind of the the big guy who could kind of lend the money to make uh, some stuff happen. Uh, his production company, his there's been a lot of really interesting stuff going through that. But um, honestly, yeah, no, that's that's a fairly easy, straightforward decision for me. I I, I kill Tom Hanks and keep Bill Murray. Yeah, I I do the same. Uh, I wouldn't blame me on that one. Um, uh, I do like Tom Hanks and a lot of stuff. I think sometimes he tends to come off as like a second-rate Jimmy Stewart in some of the stuff he does. Um, yeah. Uh, for the most part, it, most of his dramatic stuff is actually pretty solid, and I like it. Who I mean, do you think gets cast in Saving Private Ryan without Tom Hanks? Uh, well, here's the thing. is As much as I think he's really great in it, I think there's plenty of guys who could have done it just as well or better than yeah. him. Yeah, I mean, um, he he's he's a fine actor, but he's not such a fine actor that you couldn't have spread his roles around to other actors. I think you know. Yeah. What um, when was when was Safe and Private Ryan anyway? That was that was in ninety eight. Ninety eight. Okay. See, I I could see, I could see anyone from like George Clooney to even I might get laughed after this one, but I could see anyone from like George Clooney to like John Travolta take that role and probably do okay in it. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm suddenly thinking, what if Bruce Willis had done that instead of Armageddon? Oh, Bruce Willis could have fit perfect in that one. And that would have been, that would have been something I think. Yeah. I think he could pull it off really well. Whereas like, if you remove Bill Murray, like there isn't a Caddyshack. Yeah. There isn't a Ghostbusters, at least not that we know it today. His mid-period stuff, uh, a movie called uh, like Mad Dog and Glory. Mm-hmm. Um, he's such a fundamental part of that film uh, that was with uh, Robert De Niro and Uma yeah. Thurman. Yeah. A uh, very kind of richly understood character study of these kind of three people. Really underrated, I think, underseen as well. Honestly, Wes Anderson is, is mostly lost on me, so I could I could live without. Like, mm-hmm. If he wasn't around to kind of help Wes Anderson out, I 
I, I personally wouldn't care that much, although I kind of like some of the later stuff that Wes Anderson's been doing. Mm-hmm. I guess the, the, the kind of big one... God, I had a, a big one in my mind that I was thinking of with Bill Murray, but uh, I, I lost, lost in translation. Film. Lost in translation? I don't... I mean, as good as he is in Lost in Translation, I don't know that that's like a... No one else could have done that role. Um, I mean... It's yeah. definitely it definitely is enhanced by the fact that he's the one doing it, but I feel like even I mean even somebody like Ben Stiller could have done it. Yeah, but it would have had to be the more kind of flirting with disaster era Ben Stiller as opposed to, you know, the kind of goofy Zoolander esque comedy version. What about Bob? Oh, Groundhog Day. That's yeah, probably Groundhog the Day. one. That's probably the one that really wouldn't exist without him. You know, like if you if you kill Bill Murray, that 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 movie probably just doesn't even exist at all. He's so central to that, and his talents are so central to that. But he's just so brilliant. Anyway, yeah, no, yeah. I kill Tom Hanks. All right, Tom Hanks, you are kicked off the island. Um, <laughs> yeah. And since uh, since uh, they produced this uh, with his wife, uh, what's his wife's name? Uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, we are we are spared uh, the uh, big fat Greek wedding thing. Oh. Well, thank fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Which is uh, not in any sense a terrible romantic comedy, but um, definitely I remember when that movie was new and the uh, the hype around that concept was uh, insane. <laughs> and uh, without the uh, kind of Tom Hanks and his wife, whose name I can't remember because I'm a douchebag, producing team behind that, that movie probably doesn't happen quite the way it happened in, in our reality. So uh, oh, we didn't spare that. Tom Hanks' annoying rapper son wouldn't exist either. Is Colin yeah. Hanks a rapper? No, he's got another son who's you, oh, okay. who's who's uh, trying his best to be uh, uh, a rapper, and he's that, doing a really bad job at it. <laughs> I I uh, I actually like Colin Hanks. Yeah, Colin uh, Hanks is all right. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like he he kind of he, he does, it's definitely a chip off the old block. I mean, you kind of see like, oh, that's Tom Hanks' son, but uh, mm-hmm. that's not necessarily a bad thing. He's he's a perfectly fine actor. I think he's. Uh, not found the the role. I mean, he's been around for yeah. like fifteen years now, and he hasn't found that one role. So he's probably not going to find it. I do like to think that uh, you know, when we kill these guys, they don't actually die. They just don't really have a career. They go on and you know. Tom I, like Hanks, to, I like to think they actually die, but that's just me. okay. <laughs> you, you like to you like to actually imagine Tom Hanks with a bullet in his brain or something like that. Maybe no, nothing, like nothing, uh, quite, nothing quite that quick. Come on, Daniel. Maybe maybe it's uh, sort of like the Batman origin story, and like Colin <laughs> Hanks is born, and uh, you know uh, uh, the Joker comes by and kills uh, Colin Hanks. You know Tom Hanks and uh, Rita Rita something. He kills them, and then we end up with uh, Colin Hanks growing up to avenge his parents' death through acting. So we still get <laughs> Colin Hanks's career. But uh, we we lose uh, bachelor party, you know. I don't know. I can live with that. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I think we. I think we can move yeah, on. I just I went there. Yeah, the Batman origin story version of Colin Hanks, man. You know. <laughs> so I guess we can move on now to uh, what we've been watching lately. And uh, again, I'll let you go first, Daniel. So. Well. Um, Again, going by my look at the uh, classic films I get to see on the big screen at the uh, Alamo Drafthouse in town. By the way, it's amazing having an Alamo Drafthouse in town. <laughs> um, the one uh, movie that I, I like to talk about and uh, inspired my choice of movie, God, was I got to see Psycho on the big screen. Oh, really? Cool. 
unlike last week, uh, I had I had actually seen Psycho before. Um, I, I believed I had seen it and had actually seen it. So there you go. That's good. True. Um, seeing it on the big screen uh, definitely enhances the experience. I think you know you're talking about just pure directorially. The, the black and white photography is is stunning in that film. It is uh, you know assuming everyone listening to this has seen Psycho, and if you haven't, then then um, you should. Yeah. And, Watch the original version, not the not the remake, um, <laughs> you know, which we we mentioned before. But um, yeah, Janet Lee, both gorgeous and very talented, uh, really great performance. It's interesting that this is it's it's a film that is so um, that has been so parodied over the years that and it's such a kind of iconic. The, the shower scene is so iconic that mm-hmm. walking into this film. You wish you could expose this to people without see, without knowing that that scene existed. Yeah, that's the because thing. Because there is this big turning point. There's a turning point halfway through the film where Janet Lee is stabbed by Norman Bates. And then there's another twist where it turns out that Norman Bates is Norman Bates's mother. Yeah. And we kind of think about that first twist as the important one. And it is structurally, but it's also when you know that Norman Bates's mother is actually Norman, you get a very different experience of the latter half of the film because like just watching all those scenes, um, I think Anthony Perkins is uh, does a really phenomenal acting job because mm-hmm. it works either way. Whether you believe that he's just some guy trying to protect his mom from being investigated, or if you know the kind of final twist ending of the yeah. film... The performance works either way. I think um, Anthony Perkins is kind of known, at least for me, for two really big performances, and, and it's this one and then The Trial by Orson Welles. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're both amazing, and uh, actually that would be a great double feature one day. Like, We should do an episode, Psycho and The Trial. <laughs> yeah, we could probably make that happen. Um, yeah, it, it is like, you know, it, it, to some degree it is kind of spoiled because basically the unless you've been living in a cave or you're a very young kid seeing Psycho for the first time, you probably just don't know what happens to Janet Lee's character. Like, when I first saw it, I saw Psycho when I was maybe 10 or 11 or something like that. So yeah. I had no, I had no idea. I just saw it on wow. TV. And That's and, awesome. Yeah, so, I mean, when I saw her get killed, I was like, what? wait, what? What's going on? Like I And I, I hadn't seen a lot of slasher films or anything at that point, so this was sort of kind of new to me. And I was like, I just saw the main character get killed, and it was pretty damn shocking at the time. And it's still, it's still, you know, it still works for me. Like I still watch it, and I still don't want her to die every time. You know, it still hooks me and, and draws me in. There's not only that sort of reveal. There's also, of course, like you said, the reveal that Norman is just his mother in his in his mind. You know, he's crazy. But also, they he kind of Hitchcock kind of does the same thing with uh, the detective Abergast as well, where mm-hmm. you think, oh, the detective's coming in, he's going to solve the case and win the day. No, nah, he's dead. <laughs> he's yeah. down the staircase. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. Rewatching it, I was uh, thinking about uh, The Shining. Um, if you remember, the uh, the guy kind of shows up, and you think he's going to yeah solve all this, and then like, no. Dead, you know. Um, yeah, Mister uh, 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 yeah. uh, Hallerhan from uh, Scatman Crothers played them. Yeah, 
yeah. It just, uh, I just sort of kind of had that had that moment of like, oh, this is sort of structurally like The Shining, you know. Um, it has been many years since I've seen Psycho, so it, it isn't a new film for me. But I was uh, finding new things in it, um, which I won't uh, go into detail. But particularly, I think there's a uh, a feminist reading of that film that's really interesting. So one day we should actually talk about it. All right. Okay. Um, anything else? That's all I got, really. I've been busy this week, so, you know. Yeah. I watched uh, the new Jurassic Park uh, on Put Locker. Didn't really like it all that much. Uh, Jurassic World, of course. It just bored the hell out of me. It really bored the hell out of me. Uh, I know it's making tons of money, and I know a lot of people are going to be like, yeah, big summer blockbuster, lots of action, lots of fun. And it, it really does have a lot of action and stuff, and it follows the formula of the original film fairly well. And I think that's pretty much the problem, because it's all been there done that before throwing new dinosaurs into a film doesn't really make it all that more interesting to me chris pratt does pretty good i mean if they wanted to remake indiana jones or something like that like he'd be like one of the first people i think they'd want to pick for that because he can pull that sort of role off really well but the movie you you saw guardians of the galaxy right yeah yeah okay okay yeah uh, are you a, a Parks and Recreation fan at all? Did you did you see his comedy? Uh, I've seen him on a, a little bit, but I don't really watch all that much TV. So sure, uh, we're big Parks and Recreation people in this house. So uh, I kind of knew him from that first. Sorry, mm-hmm. I didn't want to interrupt, but it's really funny when you see him in the early episodes of that, where he's just this kind of schlubby guy, and he really wasn't even meant to be on the show. He mm-hmm. was really supposed to kind of leave like halfway through. Uh, the producers realized how talented he was and kind of kept him around and didn't really sure. know what to do with him at first. And then he ends up being one of the like big, you know, core elements of that show. So I think that's interesting how he, he just kind of blossomed and then like became this big action hero yeah. halfway through, which is uh, kind of awesome. But uh, I, I like Chris Pratt a lot. He's uh, I think he's he's yeah. a he's a budding star definitely. Yeah, he's he's good at it. Like what what I was watching first thing I didn't like was that. They kind of just vaguely reference the first movie, and the only returning character from the original film is uh, the like almost anonymous Asian lab assistant or whatever from the first film. He, he shows up in this one as some sort of loose connection. Like they don't even have Jeff Goldblum in it. Like they, they should have got Jeff Goldblum back because really, what's he doing anyway? He's not really doing much. So, and and I would have liked that because I actually kind of like the Lost World a bit better than uh, Jurassic Park, anyway, just because of Jeff, Jeff Goldblum and Julianne Moore. But, Julianne uh, Moore, really. Like, it, yeah, it, pre- you know, it's yeah, it's Julianne much. Moore. Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, it's certainly not their uh, their uh, stepdaughter who uh, does acrobatics or whatever to save the day. Gymnastics, you know? to, Gymnastics. To, to save the day, yeah. yeah. I actually yeah. saw the first two in theaters, and I have to this day not seen Jurassic Park 3. Yeah, you don't need to see that right. one. Kind of tells you what I what I how I feel about the the franchise yeah. as a whole. But this is um, this, this is better. It's just it reminds me of the same problem I had with uh, previous Michael Crichton property, I guess intellectual property, uh, where where you had Westworld, uh, Westworld with Yul mm-hmm. Brenner. Um, really good. He directed film. that one. He directed yeah. that one at that. Yep. Yeah, so really really good. Uh, really works well. And then Future World came along. And Future World was just a really hollow retread, and I feel like this one's just a hollow retread as well. It's just it's got a better budget. That's about it. Right. I mean, ultimately, I think what um, first of all the the uh, you know I haven't seen it. I I don't know. It kind of has not interested me enough to you know plop down the money to go see it. I feel like 
if I'm gonna see it, I should see it on the big screen, just on the logic. Yeah, of, probably. It's kind of the big summer blockbuster, and though that's what those films are meant to be. But also, I have a limited number of hours in my life, and I would rather. I mean, I chose to go see Psycho instead of seeing Jurassic, yeah. and I think that's a good choice. Honestly, probably, yeah. I, I completely support that choice. Would I rather see a 55 year old film that I've seen before, but on the big screen, or um, you know, the latest CGI? Um, monster fest yeah uh, I, I chose psycho it's it's just a thing i'll see it one of these days I, i've been i've been kind of avoiding the big summer blockbusters this summer i i you know i yeah i, I don't know it just kind of increasingly feels like there's just more interesting stuff out there to to explore and better better ways to spend uh yeah, and you know, entertainment dollars let's face it fury road is basically Leveled the playing field, destroyed everybody else. <laughs> Fury, Fury Road is like it's 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 so good. It's uh, just impossible to imagine it, it, going back to. It's sort of like when Lord of the Rings, the first Lord of the Rings, came out, and it seemed to just raise the bar about what like just people expected from that kind of movie. As much as that kind of has been tarnished over the last you know fourteen years or so. Uh, you know, Fury Road kind of feels like that. You've got a real, like, auteur. You've got this master director coming back to a franchise after 30 years and just blowing it out of the water. Yeah. And, you know, if Spielberg had come back, maybe, you know, maybe you can kind of justify to some degree. Like, it, like yeah. it just, I don't know. I saw the trailers and I was like, yeah, that looks like it costs $150 million and it looks like it would not be a bad use of my, you know, $10 to, to see the movie. But uh, it also just kind of looks like, yeah, you know, that's what it is. You know, yeah. anyway, that, that's, that's how I feel about it without having seen it. So, you know. Yeah. All right, so I guess we can move on now to our uh, movies we're going to be reviewing. first one we're going to be doing is a uh, sort of horror sex comedy combination. Uh, this is Ghoulies 3, Ghoulies Go to College from 1991, directed by John Carl uh, Buechler. Or perhaps it's perhaps it's Buechler, I don't know. Best known for directing the original Troll, so it's not Troll 2, the one everyone actually right. loves. Right. Uh, for all the wrong reasons. Um, and Friday the 13th, Part 7, uh, the, the New Blood. Wow. So that's, that's the uh, fairly well-regarded one in the series, actually. Uh, Carrie versus Jason, essentially. Because that was actually the, the original idea. They were going to try to merge those franchises together, but they couldn't do it. So they just gave a psychic girl fighting Jason Voorhees anyway. <laughs> Awesome. I'm I'm excited. Yeah. No, yeah. That's, that's great. I, I I actually don't know. I mean, I am such not a horror guy that I don't have like intimate familiarity with these franchises. A lot of these, like even classic franchises, I haven't even seen. And I, I feel embarrassed to be on this podcast and to admit that. But you're going to make me uh shore up my knowledge of horror. I know that's gonna happen. Like I'm well, going to have to watch a bunch of horror movies at some point in this. Well, uh, this, this summer you're definitely going to get uh, a nice little crash course in some uh, obscure slasher films and stuff like that. So, uh, I mean, I, I love uh, I, I love seeing them. I, it's sort of one of those things. Like, I do enjoy watching them. It's just never like a, a thing that I kind of go, "Oh, I'm going to sit down and, and and watch these." It's just always like there's yeah. just other stuff I want to watch. So, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Buchler, uh he's, he's sort, sort of a jack of all, tra- all trades, really, because he's he's got just tons and tons of 
uh, special effects behind the scenes, uh, crew credits and things like that. It's got some acting and writing and producing credits as well. Uh, so he's, he's basically done just tons and tons of stuff. I think he actually did the uh, puppets and stuff for the first Ghoulies film as well. The I... Wikipedia page for the... There isn't a Wikipedia page for Ghoulies Go to College. So let's yeah. just put that out there. There is a Ghoulies film franchise Wikipedia page, which includes a section on Ghoulies Go to College. And I know this because I, I did look up because I haven't seen the first two Ghoulies films. Mm-hmm. And I thought that might like really severely impact my enjoyment of the third film. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I'm being a little bit too dry there. Yeah, no, it, it did say that he was the original um, uh, special effects guy for the first, I think the first two, actually. Yeah, yeah. And then kind of graduated to getting to direct the third one. Yeah. Um, uh, writ- written by Brent Olson. It's starring uh, a lot of people who didn't do much, and actually quite a few people in here actually who did do quite a lot as well. So uh, we got Evan McKenzie as our hero, Skip Carter. We have very well-known and well-respected, now sadly late actor Kevin McCarthy as Professor Ragnar. Uh, you might remember him from Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, UHF. Uh, those, are, those are my two references for Kevin McCarthy, honestly. Yeah, Invasion of the yeah. Body Snatchers, UHF, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, horse Knot. I always think of him saying, uh, is it Horse Knot or is it a Pig Snot? Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, but uh, yeah, no, anyway. Please yeah. Twilight Zone, the movie. He was also in um, My Tutor, which is a, also a fairly well-regarded sort of sex comedy from the 80s. The Howling and Piranha, uh, where he had one of the more unique pronunciations of the word piranha that I've ever heard on screen that just sort of <laughs> made that film. We have Yves LaRue as Aaron Riddle, and her biggest credits after this were RoboCop 3 and the... Uh, Reverse racism film Lakeview Terrace with uh, uh, Samuel L. Jackson. Wow, she's in Lakeview Terrace. That's yeah. amazing. Wasn't um, that directed by uh, what's his name, the uh, Neil Labute? I, I think it was. I think it was. Um, yeah, like it was kind of in that like after Neil Labute, like he started out as this really like cool indie director doing like really interesting films, and then he ended up doing like studio trash. Like it, it yeah. um, you know. And there's a there's a few more notable uh, cast members here. Uh, Billy Morissette as Wes. His most notable thing since doing this movie was basically being married to more attorney for a while. <laughs> um, That's enough. I'm with you. Well, yeah, sure. Pretty good accomplishment. I'm okay with that. One of my uh, one of my favorites and one of the exceptions to the general rule that I'm I usually don't find blondes all that attractive. Uh, Hope Mary Carlton who was Playmate of the Month in July 1985. And before this, she made a good name for herself in sort of exploitation films. Uh, she did Slumber Party Massacre 3. She did A Nightmare, a bit part in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4. And she was in three Andy Sidaris films, which probably we're going to look at at some point because I know uh, Corey Carr from uh, our friends at Slaughter Film uh, requested that we do a couple of his films at some point. So she was in Hard Ticket to Hawaii, Picasso Trigger, and Savage Beach. And she was also in the TV uh, miniseries The Stand. I- I'll just admit I recognized her from her Playboy pictorial. Like. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard not to. Uh, and Jason Scott Lee, who uh, has had several sort of action roles in his career. He was uh, Bruce Lee in Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, and he actually had a voice credit in one of your favorite films, uh, Lilo and Stitch. 
I I uh, I don't I I noted that when I was uh, doing the same thing you did apparently, which is just go look at that and go right. That's that guy, right? Yeah, awesome. Yeah, uh, that and, is a really interesting character. I think we're gonna have to at least mention anyway. Please, yeah. Uh, and then we got uh, Marcia Wallace as Miss Boggs, and she's best known as Edna, Edna Krabappel in The Simpsons. She just passed away, I guess, last year, wasn't it? I think. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and she was also in the Bob Newhart show. And there's an early role for one Matthew Lillard in this film, which uh, I just totally forgot about. But <laughs> I, I missed him completely in the mm. film. Uh, the the uh, other actor who I would uh, mention, the, the guy who played the security guard, mm-hmm. um, do you have his name handy? By um, is, it Pat, is it the Patrick uh, Labier Laboratoire? Whatever the fuck. The, <laughs> I, I don't know. Wow, you're very Canadian. Yeah, nicely done. Was his uh, wasn't it Mookie? Wasn't that the name of the yeah, guy? Yeah, yeah. He uh, he played a small but pivotal role in the uh, 1998 film The Negotiator. Oh, okay. uh, and I kept looking at the guy, going, "I know his face. I know this guy's face. What is he from?" And uh, he played Farley in The Negotiator. He's the guy who wants to be a hostage negotiator, and uh, Samuel Jackson just shuts him down like four times. It's. Uh, uh. <laughs> Uh, he's one of the, he, one of the, um, he and Paul Giamatti are basically the comic relief for that, uh, for, for that film. Yeah. Really underrated film, by the way. Uh, check yeah, it out. I agree. Okay. So this is, uh, this is essentially a spoof movie that sort of combines high school slash college sex comedy kind of idea with a horror film trappings. Uh, it, like I said, it's, it's more of a spoof of the first two films. It, it essentially discards uh, the continuity of the first two films. These are different ghoulies and all this other stuff. You don't really, you don't have to know the first two films at all to get what's going on in this one. Essentially, it revolves around a prank week at the college. There's two rival fraternities. Uh, of course, Skip and his friends are the good guys, uh, and then there's arrogant, rich asshole fraternity, and they're trying to vie for the crown uh you know to be the kings of prank week or whatever uh of course skip's uh girlfriend is sort of in the middle in some sort of weird love triangle that really doesn't matter or work or anything um and essentially the 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 crux of the plot is that this professor ragnar by uh, uh played by kevin mccarthy is this basically he's this really stuck in the mud asshole uh who wants to get rid of prank week and he wants to embarrass both fraternities. So when he gets hold of this magic comic book that is somehow connected to the ghoulies, he manages to mistakenly summon them, and he starts using these little demonic toilet monsters because they come out of a uh, basically a demonic toilet portal of some sort. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a uh, it's a toilet with like medieval inscriptions. So you mm-hmm. know that like somebody in the production design had a great time designing this toilet. Let's just yeah. like that. Like that's the really the first thing you should think of when you think of this film is a production designer really had a great like job. Uh, make a make a toilet and uh, put some make it look uh, demonic. Put some, put, some, put some runes on it. Yeah, put some put, put some runes on it. Dump some green uh, green lights in it, and uh, maybe some uh, dry ice, and let's get it going here. Um, yeah, Professor Ragnar soon realizes that the ghoulies must serve him because he holds the comic book. So 
he starts using the ghoulies to pull off uh, pranks on both fraternities and make them uh, at each other's throats. And, of course, the ghoulies are demons, so they start killing people off as well. <laughs> as they're doing this stuff. And, you know, that's really the story. Like, there's no real other story there. So that, that's the bare, bare points of the plot. So I'll just ask you, uh, Daniel, starting off, uh, what's your general opinion of this film going into it? <laughs> well, I will say that uh, my strategy going into this film was uh, it actually is available on Netflix Instant. You can, uh, mm-hmm. if you're subscribed to that service, you can watch it. So uh, normally with a lot of these, we're, we're kind of watching them on, on YouTube and other illicit file sharing services and uh my apologies to all the creators of these films for uh doing that but most of them should really never have been copyrighted in the first place this one you can actually watch in a, in a legal way if you are subscribed to netflix and uh so i could actually sit down and and like sit on my couch and watch it as opposed to like kind of having to sit at my computer or whatever so my strategy was uh open up a couple of beers watch as much of it as i felt like watching and then you know kind of come back later when I, but I ended up watching the whole film in, in one go, uh, which I didn't expect to do. Um, most of the calls it is uh, kind of light and fluffy enough that yeah. it doesn't uh, really require a lot of attention or uh, even, even knowing I'm going to podcast it where if I'm, if I know I'm going to podcast it, I definitely will make the effort to, to kind of like have thoughts in mind at least while I'm watching it. It's a, uh, it's an entertaining enough kind of diversion, I suppose. Uh, I am reminded in general that media like films, books, TV shows, magazines, etc., that uh, star are set in a world of adolescence uh, are typically made for people one kind of rung below. So if you're mm-hmm. watching like 15 year olds on screen, it's really like made for like 12 year olds or 10 year olds, you know? And um, the sense, even though these characters are all presumably 18, 19, 20, you know, somewhere in there, uh, they all a look like they're in their mid to late twenties and B this is less like the college experience than it is like what a 13 year old believes the college experience. Yeah. Would be like. <laughs> Once you accept that about the film, it, it's fairly, it, it's inoffensive. I wouldn't say it's funny. No. Um, I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell a little anecdote, uh, not my anecdote, but I'm going to, I'm going to basically do a Patton Oswalt routine. Patton Oswalt tells the story of he was in a uh, writing room once where, uh, you know, because he got hired to do a lot of, like, kind of script editing and, you know, kind of punch up some scripts because he's a funny guy. He got hired to go on to this animated feature where they had already produced the film. They already had the thing made. But what they wanted was him to write clever little lines that people could say from off screen onto onto camera because all the lip movements and everything have already been done. But if you can kind of like throw, like we want it to be 20% funnier. So we want 20% more jokes. And so we just need to like add things to say that characters can say off screen to make it funnier. Right? Like that's how mm-hmm. comedy works. No, wasn't, not this, uh, wasn't this Ratatouille? Was it Ratatouille? Well, think... he was, he was the star of Ratatouille. It wasn't oh, that yeah. one. It was, okay. it was some like, probably direct a video or some like shitty little thing like in the nineties or early two thousands. Like he doesn't say which film it is like sort of thing. I mean, a lot of these, all these things are just little shitty movies that like nobody really cared about, but they wanted to like, there was some production person. So he doesn't talk about like what that is, but that's kind of the feeling I got watching Ghoulies go to college was that 
the writers were essentially just throwing lines at the screen and then just ABRing them in and, and dialogue later. Like there's very little sense of like any kind of like context that these lines are coming from these three ghoulie characters. Mm-hmm. It's entirely like we're going to tell stupid puns that a 13 year old would think are hilarious and we're not even going to do it in a way that like mimics a mouth movement or like that has any kind of connection to character. Um, it's very much like Family Guy in that way, um, yeah. which is not. <laughs> if that's your way of doing comedy, I, I can I. If you like it, I'm totally with you. Uh, again, it was entertaining enough to sit through it, but um, ultimately, I was I was pretty bored watching this. Yeah, um, the, the... it's not very funny. It's not scary at all. Uh, Kevin McCarthy is doing a great job mm-hmm. of uh, giving it some kind of interest. Uh, but that's because he's Kevin McCarthy. Uh, I will say that the creature designs for 1991 are are quite good. I mean, it, it, obviously yeah. that's kind of where they spent their money. Uh, I wish that they had given the ghoulies a little bit more to do. And um, there's some naked girls in it. There's a lot and of naked girls in it. <laughs> there's, there's quite a bit of naked girls in it. Um, actually, uh, Hope Marie Carlton... Her character, I I think she was probably my favorite character in the film. Mm-hmm. Much less, uh, you know, not. I mean, even if she had not gotten nude, I think that uh, she was probably the most watchable part of this film. Um, yeah, after so, um, after like Kevin McCarthy and um, Marcia Wallace, she's kind of the sort of veteran actor in this, really. In right, some ways, right. yeah. So. I mean, you, you got you got Kevin McCarthy, you got Marsha Wallace. They're doing their thing. They're they're consummate professionals doing the constant professional thing. Uh, those two aside, you know, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the kind of main characters, the the sort of, you know, young guys. The Yank Week, Prank Week thing, I mean, you know, I just, I, it's it's such, like it's embracing the cliche to a degree that is almost ridiculous in the sense yeah. of, like, there are these people that actually really care about, like, pranks. Yeah, and, like, like I, these really silly pranks, I and would, none of them are even like clever. Like that's the thing. Like it's yeah, just, um, they're terrible. Like it's it screams nineteen ninety one directed video to me. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, I if if I was on if I was in that college and I saw the guy that Hope Mary Carlton was originally with, which is the West character at the beginning of the film. If if I saw him with her and he all of a sudden disappears, my goal would be to get with her. It would not be to do prank week. I'd be I'd, I have a chance. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and and I mean, again, we kind of just to just to kind of I'm going to leave this behind really quickly. But there is the uh, this sort of idea that you know, oh, she's a slut, you know, or whatever. She's she's you know really horny and trying to sleep with a bunch of the dudes in the film. But at the same time, you know, for me, I'm just like it actually sort of like in the performance, you sort of get, she just likes having sex and yeah, she sells I, it real well. She sells it really well. Like I, I, I just, I buy her as a, as a character. I think that the, you know, in a sense, the, the filmmakers are trying to make fun of her, but I, I don't, I think that like, yeah, no, I'm totally with you. Do your thing. Yeah. Go for it. Sleep with people, have a good time. And uh, since we were talking about psycho, you do get a shower scene, a death in a shower scene. Mm-hmm. Um, probably, uh, a psycho joke just to yeah, uh, pull it, pull it uh, uh, right around there. Yeah, but it is uh, the deaths in this are all ridiculous. Like, actually, the real, I guess, probably the better comedy in this film probably revolves around the deaths because they they're all designed around uh, the special effects in the film. Some of them work 
better than others, but they're all played like uh, almost like a live action Looney Tunes cartoon, the mm-hmm. way they're done, right? Hope Mary Carlton's death with the plunger in her face, uh, Marcia Wallace's uh, death with, with her tongue. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they're in, you know, in even poor Wes at the beginning, they're getting stuffed down the demonic toilet or whatever. They're all, they're all just like, you can't take them seriously. And I guess, and I kind of like them. Uh, I like, I like the effects work uh, enough in this one. Leagues above the first two films, I can definitely say that. Like I've seen the first two films and they're more straight ahead horror than they are like this film, which actually has the comedic uh, side going through it. So it's, it's, it, it works Fairly well, as you know, uh, as far as uh, just having stupid uh, pranks and titties on the film. There is a interesting uh, cameo in this one, an uncredited cameo for Kane Hodder, who went on to play uh, Jason Voorhees in a couple of the uh, Friday the Thirteenth films. Uh, he, he's the guy who steps in the uh, mop bucket. Oh, that, nice! That one, yeah, that one prank there. So yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. I mean, in some of the prank, like you, you've got to admire. I mean, it's very clear that the director of this film was a special effects guy because mm-hmm. the special effects are actually, again, low budget for 1991 are, are quite good. I mean, the, I, I can't really complain. I mean, there is that, this was definitely the era in which the animatronics were in that kind of uncanny valley of um, it's real enough to kind of look like something, but the mouth doesn't really move the way you want yeah. it to. And I mean, ultimately, the way they solved that long term was, you know, they the CGI got good enough that you could kind of do an animatronic and then just make the lips move with CGI with motion. <laughs> it would be interesting to do. I mean, this is sort of that same sort of idea that I kind of come back to of like, I could see a good version of this film. This idea is not bad. Yeah, uh, the execution is pretty awful, just because clearly no one gave a shit about most of this film. Uh, but at the same time, I could see this kind of like, okay, there are going to be these demonic critters that come up from a toilet. Uh, there are a bunch of stupid kids doing pranks, and we're going to do a horror comedy around that. Like, there's a clever idea there. Yeah. But the the movie really does nothing with it. I will also say the uh, the, the fact that the uh, the panty raid goes the way it I was going to mention is, that. Yeah, is a, uh, it's a fun moment. I had forgotten about that until just now. Uh, I really like the fact that the uh, the ladies just turn the tables on the guys completely. And the best um, thing is it's uh, it's a win win for either either side of the uh, equation there because you know the ladies get their comeuppance on the guys, but at the same time they're all naked in the anyway. <laughs> right, right. I mean, yeah, because clearly you get naked to to do this, but yeah. uh, there is this sense of when you when you look at the panty raid in this film and in some of the you know other films that this is kind of an expected thing for both sides and that it mm-hmm. is sort of a, a mating ritual of kinds and, and uh, sort of uh, while it's hard to, uh, to kind of communicate consent issues and that sort of thing with, with this culture. And obviously the film isn't exploring that in any kind of way. Um, the way that this plays out definitely kind of makes me think, yeah, you know, I, I'm willing to say there's no rape in this film, which is always a plus for the sex comedy world. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, um, I I don't really have anything else to say, but I I, I kind of enjoy this one a little bit. Like I've I've I've, I've watched it a couple times. You know, it's it's light fare. Like you said, it's it's the kind of movie it's okay to watch if you have a couple beers in front of you um, or uh, two thousand and one beers. Yeah, two. Yeah, <laughs> uh, 
um, yeah, no, uh, Kubrickian references and and Goody's Go to College always a uh, always a great. Yeah. Yeah, but it, like we said, it's on Netflix. It's it's worth your time. It's only what eighty minutes of your time or whatever. So yeah, no, it, it's pretty easy. It's pretty uh, relaxed and um, whatever. Yeah. All right. Uh, I guess we can move on to what I think is probably the more interesting film of the two I picked, and this is Not of This Earth from nineteen eighty eight, uh, directed by Jim Wynarski. Uh He's a well-noted, low-budget horror, sci-fi, sexploitation, softcore porn director. He's got over 100 credits to his name. He is, I guess, probably in the last 25 years, he's probably the B-movie director, really. He, the the real prominent guy who's still working in that sort of field. Um, uh, it was uh, written by R.J. Robinson and Jim Wernowski. Adapted from the original script, this is, of course, a remake of the 1957 version of Not of This Earth, directed by Roger Corman. Corman's back producing this one. It is starring an interesting cast, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> Tracy Lords uh, stars in this as Nadine, Nadine Story. This is her first non-porn role, and the last role that she ever did with nudity in it. We have... Uh, Arthur Roberts as Mr. Johnson, Lenny Giuliano as Jeremy, Ace Mask as Dr. Rochelle, uh, Roger Lodge of Blind Date fame as Harry. <laughs> I knew I recognized him. <laughs> yeah. Also of note would be uh, Becky LeBeau as uh, the uh, happy birthday stripogram girl. Uh, she's, she's a fairly well-known uh, sort of titty movie uh, actress uh, in her day. This was um, this was remade essentially because uh, Roger Corman wanted to uh, remake one of two movies uh, from his uh, 1950s output. And this movie was in a double bill with Attack of the Crab Monsters. But because Roger Corman is a notorious cheapskate, always has and always will be, essentially he looked at the budget and what would it make, what would it cost to make the giant crab monsters in the modern day? And they're like, that's going to be a little too expensive for me. Uh, probably $50 more than he was willing to spend. So he decided to make this one instead. And this, the, the plot is essentially this alien comes to Earth coming from a dying planet. He's seeking human blood to give transfusions to his people. He recruits Tracy Lord's character as, as his nurse uh, to assist him. He also has uh, Lenny Giuliano's character as his uh, chauffeur. And essentially, people start dying. Our heroes try to figure out what the hell is going on uh, while the alien's trying to basically save his planet by uh, stealing our blood. So that's essentially pretty much the plot of the film. Uh, what, what are your uh, initial thoughts on this one, uh, Daniel? <laughs> this is definitely a more interesting film than uh, Good Let's Go to College, mm -hmm. uh, not least because the remake quality. I mean, it's essentially the same script. Yeah. I uh, I was going to watch the original version of this as well because uh, I, I was going to like watch the, the 1988, the Tracy Lloyd's version, and then kind of go back and watch the original. I just ran out of time. I was I was watching a little bit of the original, uh, actually not long before we started recording, quite honestly. And I watched about the first 30 minutes of it, and the um, immediate response is, wow, this is the same script mm -hmm. with uh, a few words changed here and there. It, it really is uh, scene for scene, 
in some places almost shot for shot uh, yeah. the same film. And I think that it's interesting to to kind of watch them that way because you can definitely see watching the 88 version, you kind of think, is this a period film? Because they're kind of driving an old car and a lot mm-hmm. of the dialogue and the structure just kind of feels very, like, really old fashioned and not like 80s old fashioned, but, you know, really old fashioned. And then you realize, no, it's the exact same script. They're literally just lifting the dialogue straight. Yeah. And um, it gives this kind of really weird timelessness, I think, to uh, the 88 version mm-hmm. because it's very clearly made in the 80s. I mean, just very obviously made in the 80s. And my favorite 80s <laughs> tell in the film is the fact that the uh, quote-unquote tough guy who's acting as the chauffeur mm-hmm. wears fingerless gloves. Yeah. That's the, like, he's, he's wearing fingerless gloves through the entire film. Yeah. And uh, that is that is about the most 80s thing I can imagine putting in a film. And that's how you know he's the tough guy. Yeah. But yeah, no, um, Tracy Lords, I think, uh, I mean, I was going to say does a fairly credible job as an actress mm-hmm. uh, in this. Uh, she's been, an, I mean, she continues to kind of act. Even she was in Zach and Mary make a porno. Yeah. Uh, she's been, uh, kind of around she's done a bit of tv here and there i mean um she's not a terrible actress at all i mean you know uh, i don't think i think that towards the beginning when she's doing the more kind of uh campy kind of situational comedy kind of uh back and forth uh dialogue Mm -hmm. um she's uh, better than towards the end when she's being a screen queen i don't think she's very good at that part of the role i think she really (laughs) I'm gonna go Doctor Who here. She reminded me of Bonnie Langford, uh, Mel from um, from Doctor uh, Who, which is the uh, the classically bad uh, actress from the uh, from the Doctor Who uh, universe. In, in terms of her her screaming and and running around, like I I didn't buy her for a second in in that yeah. sequence. But like watching the two versions back to back, it, it does kind of like you you look, watch the original and all this is played completely straight. But I think in the '80s, the the director. And the, the the kind of the crew realized, oh, we have to play this for camp value, and Tracy Lords fits in perfectly in that world. Like like kind of a lot of the dialogue, you know, do you want a regular or unleaded when talking yeah. about the blood, you know? And the original, yeah. I think, diesel or petrol or something like that. Yeah, I think um, so. <laughs> and it's played uh, that actress plays it in this very like straightforward, uh, kind of almost uh, newsreadery kind of way. Uh, whereas Tracy Lords plays it as a joke, and I think that that's the you know, the right way to handle this material. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also uh, fairly impressed with the uh, actor who played the uh, the bad guy, the the, the kind of the, the big alien. Uh, uh, Arthur uh, Roberts, did, uh, yeah. He did quite a good job of kind of selling the alienness and the unreality of this character through. I mean, again, this is not a great performance, but it's certainly. Uh, probably better than this movie deserves mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Other than that, I'm kind of left. There's not really much to say except uh, Tracy Lords obviously looks uh, very nice with her clothes off. Yeah, the movie does uh, definitely make good use of Tracy Lords' footage, uh, whether she's nude or in that awesome blue bikini that she wears in the, in the film, which is just she wears, fantastic. She, she wears a lot of uh, outfits in this film. Let's just, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's a lot of like, she's obsessively a nurse kind of staying at this guy's house to like give him blood transfusions every few hours or whatever. Mm-hmm. She's, she brought some really ritzy clothes. Like, you know, uh, I think if um, most women would kind of bring pajamas, but no, yeah. she brought like <laughs> slinking, uh, you know, night dresses, that sort of thing. Anyway. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting. They, um, 
they had a hard time tracking her down actually for this film, but they really wanted her because it was just around the period where she was found out for being underage in all the porn films she did. Right. So Mm -hmm. she was kind of persona non grata in the industry. Uh, She was kind of in hiding almost, Mm -hmm. Uh, but she was given the opportunity to, Hey, you want to actually act in a real Hollywood film? I guess you, uh, you know, as, as far as Roger Corman stuff is considered Hollywood. Um, but, uh, yeah, so she took the role, and she decided that it was going to be her last role that she did any nudity in. And I think she does a pretty credible job uh, with what she's given. Uh, they, it's, it's funny because uh, they, didn't, they didn't shoot it in a linear fashion. So, of course, some of the early scenes were shot later. Um, they actually re- went back and reshot some of her uh, first scenes and, and just redid them because her acting apparently improved as she got more comfortable on the set. So it works that way. Very, very cheap film. There's actually uh, a lot of screen time that isn't even footage from this film. Um, it's footage from other films. And this is something you commonly see in a Roger Corman production. There's two films where just sequences were just totally lifted from those films and put into this, the pad, the film footage from humanoids from the deep. And the other one is Hollywood Boulevard. And I'll say this, the, the Hollywood Boulevard one, they pretty much seamlessly stick in, even though you see a lot of film grain on the, on the older film stock for the, for those films. And that's the, uh, sort of, uh, stock and kill sequence when the uh, female alien gets injected with rabid rabid dog <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah like there there's there's a sequence in the film where so our, our our main villain alien is contacting his planet through this fancy little uh, portal in his uh in his office in his closet, essentially. And they bring over one of the females from his planet. They end up t- testing the blood out on her, but uh, somehow, and this guy, by the way, he's working around blood all the time. You think he'd know his shit by now, but no, he injects her with the rabid dog blood. <laughs> and does my, she... my favorite moment is when the uh, the other nurse kind of brings in and says, "Oh, I've got this sample of blood. Mm. I need to put it in the fridge, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And I mean, a blood sample is a few cc's. It's 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 like a tiny, like in a test tube. Yeah. This is like a liter of blood, you know, oh, yeah, just throw it. Like, oh, yeah, I got a sample from that guy. You know, I've got, you know, a, a, a soda bottle full of, full of blood here. Yeah. I just put it in the fridge. I'll deal with it tomorrow. Like, yeah, this is exactly how lab work works. Yeah. I work in lab. <laughs> we don't deal with the blood, but I'm saying this is yeah. exactly the attitude that people have towards. Yeah. Just put it in, put it like a little label on the, on the lid and throw it in the, yeah, you're good. Don't worry. Yeah. Eight, eight million CCs of dog blood. Let's just stick yeah. it in there. But I mean, yeah, essentially, she, extracted the blood from three dogs to get this. Yeah, right? like, pretty much. So yeah, it, it makes the uh, female young go crazy. And uh, I'll say this again: they did fairly good job of sort of kind of seamlessly switching between her and the scene they just basically lifted from Hollywood Boulevard. So that works pretty well. Like there's there's like twenty minutes of padding from other films stuck into this film. Um, I, I'll say like towards the end, the last like twenty minutes or so, I kind of stopped paying quite as close of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I honestly didn't even notice. Maybe if I sat down and was was paying closer attention, I would I would notice more. But um, well, it, it also helps if you're familiar with like 
some of Corman's other stuff that was he was producing because uh, basically all that was available to them. And this is this is sort of the thing you'll see in a lot of Corman films of the era. Of the era. They didn't really have any footage of his classic stuff on negatives anywhere, but mm-hmm. they had tons of stuff from like the last ten or fifteen years, like the late seventies into the eighties, right? So uh, whenever people were making films for him, they were allowed to just go in and grab whatever they wanted to stick in the film, right? So this film is essentially probably the running time is probably pretty much the same as the actual classic original film, which was only like 63 minutes or something like that. But yeah, the, they, they, they add like extra 20 minutes in just with the padded footage. What did, what did you think of the opening credits of this film where they stuffed in tons and tons of clips from previous Corman films? Did that make you, did that sort of like get you amped up? Like, oh yeah, there's going to be some cool stuff in this film. It, I was not thinking, oh, there's going to be some cool stuff in this film. But I think that uh, it definitely was a, a stylish opening. I, I was I was kind of, uh, I was feeling the vibe. Let's just put it that way. It was definitely sort of, we know this is cheesy. We know we're kind of remaking something from the 50s. We know we're uh, not doing great cinema here. This is not in the Citizen Kane race. This is... Let's sit and have a good time, and we're gonna throw some some pretty cool like old school graphics. And uh, I I enjoyed that element actually. It was it, it prepared me definitely for the film. No, no yeah. Um. So yeah, like we said, this is almost like a essentially just the same script lifted. Um. They they update the special effects a little bit. I mean, for Corman, there there's usually not that much of a, uh, <laughs> a leap in uh, <laughs> in technology. Uh, so let's let's put it that way. You know, I'll be honest here. Uh, at least uh, for me, I, it definitely this looks like an inexpensive film, but I was not thinking this looked cheap. Which no, was, I think is um... I think is is when you know, and this is kind of one of those things that I think that low budget filmmakers just kind of have to like realize when you know you've got a low budget and you know you're not going to be able to really sell stuff hey you got to make sure there's one or two things that you can really like one good shot will, mm-hmm. will really raise people's opinions of your film but B like don't try for like something that you're not ever going to be able to achieve. Like once your budget is once you kind of know what aesthetic you can afford, sell that and sell it through performance. You know, a good actor staring at a rubber monster and not acting like it's a rubber monster mm-hmm. will sell that rubber monster way better than, you know, trying to pretend that rubber monster is better than it is. And that's well, you, that's sort well, you of know, what I mean. You know that and you know that very well from watching classic Doctor Who. I mean, <laughs> classic Doctor Who is the is the uh, epitome of this. But uh, certainly, uh, there there are plenty of other uh, places where this works. And I, and I think that uh, maybe we should do some like old like low budget horror movies and that sort of thing, kind of creature effects, because I think that uh, the way that a lot of this works is you don't take it like. I think today in the year 2015, we were talking about like CGI with Jurassic World and everything's supposed to look like super photorealistic and it's supposed mm-hmm. to look like. I don't think that audiences in, well, 1957, but even like, I, I think that audiences will accept the reality they're given to a certain degree. Like if the actors sell it, if the script is selling it, then you can kind of say, yeah, this doesn't look like it costs a lot of money. This isn't like super visually impressive, but it does the job it's meant to do. It sure. sells this sort of like reality, and 
as long as there is something else in the film to kind of push you along the narrative. I mean, I was, and I'll, I'll, I'll be honest here. I was bored during Ghoulies Go to College, but I was not bored during this film. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly not. Uh, partly because of the performance of the, uh, the kind of crazy alien guy and uh, Tracy Lords, to be quite honest. I yeah, think yeah. she's, she's a, she's a compelling, I mean, again, in the particularly in the first half, when it, you know she's just kind of being goofy and fun and, and telling silly jokes and that sort of thing, she's a lot of fun to watch. The nudity was nice. I'm not saying, but it didn't make or break the film for me, mm-hmm. and, and that's saying something for a film like this. You know, um, yeah. Uh, uh, the, the the second half does kind of fall apart, and I mean this. I guess it kind of ran out of steam after a while, but uh, I'll say this: like they made the best out of their budget they could. Really, I mean. Um, they re they reuse sets and stuff like that uh, all the time. One one noticeable one, if you pay attention, uh, there's this picture that appears uh, in one shot hanging on the wall, and then uh, basically every room that you see from that from then on, you see that picture in that room. They <laughs> reused it over and over again. Um, That's awesome. I don't know if anyone's ever done an official total, but this movie must have the most instances of seeing a camera crew in the reflection of a car. All the cars in this are way too shiny. Like, you can see <laughs> the camera crews in the mirrors. One instance where Tracy Lords is driving uh, the car up the driveway, she, she didn't know how to drive, so they actually had to push the car, and you could actually see their reflections in the mirrors of the I, I need to sit down and watch this a little more carefully. That That's kind of the, the key. I, I, I really did just kind of approach this as a, a silly movie I'm just going to sit in and, and enjoy, you know, kind of in popcorn mode. Um yeah. Yeah, but, see, but uh, you know, the there's a charm to uh, to uh, low budget uh, production like that, and uh, I don't know, I enjoy it. I yeah, um, I mean, I'm I'm just mentioning these because uh, this is stuff that's uh, actually you you probably wouldn't catch it while you're watching it, but they bring it up in the uh, there's two different commentaries uh, that were done for this film, uh, both with uh, Jim Wynarski and, and he points out all the mistakes he makes in the film. Every, every error in the film, he points out one instance where Tracy Lords is naked in the mirror or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, one shot shows her wearing high heels. Next shot shows her barefoot. Just, just this funny stuff like that. Like it, it's, it is, it's actually very enjoyable listening to the commentary on this one uh, I, you can I believe get, it yeah and you can get uh, the DVD from uh, Shout Factory I'm, I'm sure you can still find it somewhere um, I'm actually kind of surprised they didn't bundle this in with the original but the original is bundled it is also available from Shout Factory you can get that with Attack of the Crab Monsters which is also kind of decent and despite the really silly crab monsters in the film and also the really terrible War of the Satellites, which is just dull as fuck, and no one should watch that film. But And this movie was also remade in 1995 as well, and it's actually much more serious. Uh, again, Like it kind of loses the whole campy feel of uh, this one. Yeah, I did notice that was kind of a difference in the 50s. They were they were playing it really straight. I mean, they're, they're pretending it's the day the Earth stood still or something, you know? Yeah. And then whereas the 80s version, I mean, you know, once you've got Tracy Lords and you're making it for next to nothing and you're, there is a, there is a point to doing both. One, while we're talking about low budget filmmaking um, and just to, uh, just to kind of put this out there, I, I always think it would be really interesting to um, kind of make a, a TV show. I, there was a, uh, there was this period on like Adult Swim where uh, they were kind of doing a bunch of uh, live action TV where they were doing like 15 minute things and, uh, 
the whole point was to do like Land of the Lost and do like really bad special effects, but to do it in like a funny way and to do it in a in a like overtly just kind of stupid stoner way. Um, mm. Not that I'm judging anyone who chooses to uh, to smoke weed, but uh, <laughs> you know, it, kind of to do it in the in the like the dumbest, most obvious joke possible. I always thought like a really interesting project would be to uh, kind of find really talented people, give them a tiny amount of money and say, go take something completely serious. Like go tell a really great story on $50, you know? And I think that uh, this kind of film kind of just reinvigorates that. I I think that there is a a real joy to low budget filmmaking because you're not, (laughs) because you're not spending a lot of money, you don't have to worry about making a lot back. And so you can really play around with some, some ideas and, uh, the idea, I mean, honestly, uh, talking about Psycho, I mean, we keep kind of coming back to that Shot for Shot remake that Gus Van Sant did. You know, if you're talking about Shot for Shot remake, uh, this is not precisely, but but essentially a Shot for Shot remake of, of the original mm-hmm. and much more effective because it had an original idea. Yeah. Of, we're going to kind of do this again, but we're going to completely reshape it just through performance and editing and um, set design and that sort of thing. So, this is the way you do that. I mean, it is possible to do a, a kind of clever remake uh, of an earlier film that is uh, still, I don't know. Uh, I enjoyed it. It's, it's kind of, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. It was, it, yeah, was it, it is, it is fun. It's, it's one uh, I finally remember from seeing when I was, when I was uh, younger and uh, I'm glad there's a DVD release of it. And yeah, uh, it's actually probably, it's probably the best of the Corman remakes really too. It's like the one that really kind of really hit everything out of the park, kind of had everything going for it. Just a nice little mixture of bad actors and interesting actors and decent special effects and a kind of a don't give a fuck attitude, just trying to have fun. And they shot it uh, under, under 12 days. There was a bet between Winorski and Corman. Corman shot the original one in 12 days, and they, they did this bet where uh, Corman would kick back extra money to Winorski by the end of the deal um, if he could get it done under 12 days, and he actually brought it in uh, in 11 and a half. So. <laughs> Nicely done. Nicely well, done. You've seen the original. like You, you have knowledge of the original. Mm-hmm, I own uh, it. I, I was uh, watching it on YouTube, and I uh, got to the vacuum cleaner repairman or the, uh, the, the Dick vacuum Miller. is that okay. Okay. I was wondering if it was James Kahn briefly. No. Um, okay. That yeah, was, is, I, I didn't have a chance to look it up. So my apologies. But. Yeah. It, it, it is Dick Miller, well-known character actor who went on to star and just built everything. Uh, Joe Dante did. <laughs> nice. He's in Gremlins and uh, all kinds of other stuff. That's the guy. I'm, yeah. Yes, I know him from Gremlins. That's yeah. exactly it. No, uh, they, they tried to get him. They tried to get him back for this film, but he didn't want to do it. So they got a really good, actually, a really good stand-in for Dick Miller, like a guy who really kind of looked a lot like him. Yeah. Yeah. And in, the, in this one, they uh, in the original, they had a stereotypical Asian sort of uh, laundromat worker get killed. And in this one, essentially replacing him as the three hookers uh, <laughs> that he right. Played. It was it was like I literally got to the point where the uh, chauffeur was uh, going to collect the bums to come and uh, kill them, mm-hmm. uh, and so that that's where I left off. But I was like, oh yes, in the original they were bums, and in the uh, remake, uh, yeah, they're hookers because 
tits. Why not? Yeah. You know? Sure. And one of them is um, actually a fairly famous uh, sort of titty exploitation actress uh, in her own right, uh, Ava Cadell, who is now like a sex therapist professionally. So Interesting. Yeah. Hey, go for it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this this one's really worth watching. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's not boring. I mean, it's notable for Tracy Lord's uh, first performance out, outside of porn. And yeah, I like I like it a lot. It, it, for for me, it's probably the best modern era Corman production that I can recall. True. Sure. Uh, for me, it's just an entertaining time. And um, Tracy Lord's is uh, not a terrible actress. Like, no. And and. I mean that's kind of enough for me, honestly. Like she, she's she's a lot of fun, and um, the movie is is not terrible. Like I mean, you know, it's it's um, it, even even if you don't have like a heavily camp sensibility, I think that you could still get something out of this. I think that the uh, the uh, again the kind of the big bad guy is actually creepy enough, and there's mm-hmm. they kind of play that like mental connection with the uh, the alien race and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. It's effective enough, even in this kind of broader comedy version, that uh, I think it's uh, it's still interesting. Again, I think the the last uh, twenty thirty minutes the movie does kind of fall apart. It, yeah. it really ultimately structurally they should have played up the the kind of dread and the not necessarily a mystery, but they they really should have played up the alienness a little bit more instead of kind of devolving into essentially a chase movie. In yeah, the last a uh, little bit. I, I think that uh, rewriting the last third kind of massaging that script a little bit and kind of playing it more as a a character beat between you know like ultimately the resolution of the film doesn't have anything to do with the first two-thirds of it Mm. you know and a a lot of that could uh probably be attributed to the fact that they were working under corman uh corman doesn't really give people a lot of time (laughs) He, he gives them a budget he gives them a short amount of time to get it done under the budget and that's usually the way it works. So it's actually kind of remarkable that they got something better than even halfway decent out of the whole production. So, you know, yeah, I don't know. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, uh, Daniel, tell everyone about your, mo- uh, not movie podcast. You're on a movie podcast. Your doctor who podcast. Well, I have a movie podcast that I do with this asshole. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's called, they must be destroyed on site. You can check that out at uh, tmbdos uh, dot uh, podbean dot com. Yeah. Um, or if you uh, want to listen to an actually decent podcast, uh, <laughs> <I do. laughs> um, you can uh, check out my. And you're a fan of uh, Doctor Who, particularly classic Who, because we've been doing a lot of that lately. Um, you can listen to my Doctor Who podcast, which I do with my wife. Um, that's at Oi Spaceman. That's O I Spaceman, all in word. Dot Libsyn, L I B S Y N dot com. Where Actually, I just did a episode. I uploaded it today as we're recording, mm-hmm. uh, all about um, the introduction of the robot dog canine, mm-hmm. and we talked a lot about colonialism and slavery and uh, the white man's burden. And that should tell you everything you need to know about how um, you know really self-serious my other podcast is. But uh, <laughs> you know, we we take our we take our media seriously in this household. So you know, there, there you go. Yeah. See, I didn't even talk about communism today. I mean, seriously, oh, you shit. should have, you know, you should let me talk about communism and what can I, what can I have talked about about Ghoulies? Man, I should have done like some crazy reading of Ghoulies Go to College. I should have uh, uh, completely read that as a um, a Marxist narrative, perhaps. Uh, you know, the uh, 
the underclass from the uh, from the sewers coming up to uh, mm. destroy the uh, the rich preppy guy with the crazy hair. Like there Ragnar is Joseph Stalin. Yeah, yeah. Ragnar, <laughs> Ragnar is, uh, is Trotsky. I think he's Trotsky. Yeah, yeah there you up go. With a, a, um, Ice uh, pickaxe in his brain. All right, yeah. ice pickaxe. Yeah, ice pick, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there we go. Look at yeah. that. Done. That's right. what people expect from me. Yeah. Okay. Um. So, if anyone wants to send in comments or questions, uh, you'll hear the all information at the end of this podcast. So where to go and what to do. We uh, again welcome any comments and questions, suggestions, uh, movie suggestions, all that great stuff. And um, honestly. Neither one of these movies really have anything from the soundtracks that I want to go out on. So I think I'm just going to go to sort of your default uh, answer uh, that you or default suggestion that you gave a few, quite a few podcasts ago that whenever we don't have something, we just uh, pick a nice uh, Ennio Morricone soundtrack to go out on. So <laughs> I've been uh, humming Ennio Morricone for uh, for the actually all night. I've been humming some stuff from uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. So. You pick something, anything. You can you can throw a dart at an any Morricone score and find something great to go out. Yeah, on. So yeah. do it. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, thank you for joining me, Daniel. And we'll see you guys all later. Bye bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through.